This is Waking from the American Dream, and this is Kelly Carlin. I think we're going to start with uh, a little music today. Here we go. I dedicate this song with love Up to the moon and stars above And to the sky that fits them like a glove Under the gray unknown Sure ain't no place like home This is Kelly Carlin. This is Waking from the American Dream. And uh, I hope we're all doing good here. Wait, I don't know if we have any sound. Can you hear me? Johnny, want to make sure everything's okay? I think it is. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I just checking my levels. We're good? Okay. All right. So anyway, uh, that was a song from Travis Shook and the Club Wow. Uh, these were two guys who I knew from when I was a kid because they opened for my dad. And uh, I thought it would be appropriate that uh, they opened for me today. So uh, that was uh, Chandler Travis and Stephen Shook and the Club Wow from like, I don't know, 1972. Well, here we are starting my premiere show. I'm very excited, a little nervous, but very, very happy. And uh, sitting here in the heart of Hollywood, or Hollyweird as I like to call it, in an apartment building in a secret location, uh, the headquarters of New Dissident Radio. Uh, today we're going to do a couple different things. I'm going to play some clips. I'm going to play some interviews. Uh, have a little fun. You get to see the diversity of my strange brain. And uh, what we're going to start off with here today is uh, a little clip that inspired the title of my radio show. And this clip, if you uh, have been on Facebook the last, oh, I don't know, month or two, uh, should be pretty familiar with it. And, uh, and then I'm going to follow it right up with uh, my first guest interview with Paul Provenza. And I'm sure you know of Paul. He is, of course, a stand-up. He's host of the fabulous Showtime show, The Green Room. And he is co-creator of the book Satiristas with Dan Dion. So let's start with the clip, and then we're going to go right into the Paul Provenza interview. First up, my papa. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. Politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient 
workers, people who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. And by the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people. White collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Man. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. All right, so I'm sitting here in my back studio hanging out with Paul Provenza. We are yeah. both about to pop our cherries here for my radio show. This is my first official sit-down conversation with someone. Very exciting. I love doing it publicly. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, we even asked my husband's uh, permission, and he said it was okay if we <laughs> I, come back here and do this. I think so he's watching. He probably will be watching later, actually, knowing him. Uh, so we were just uh, listening to, or actually watching on YouTube, the video of my dad talking about the ownership of America in mm -hmm. particular the American Dream uh, line, which this video has gone viral since, I don't know, and the beginning of August. And it was done in 92, 93 uh, No, this one is from 2006. Oh, two, from, 2006. Uh, the cheery title of the show was Life is Worth Losing. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's just the truth. <laughs> I mean, the bottom line is it's just the truth. And, and um, interestingly... You know, it's gone viral because where else are you going to get the truth? You're not going to get it from journalism. You're not going to get it from media. You're not, going, you're not even getting it from academics anymore. You're getting it from people who don't care what you think, and that's stand-up comics, you know, among them. <laughs> Certainly the ones who go viral, you know. Um, uh, it's just way more interesting to hear it said funny. But that seems to be one of the few ways that people actually do bother to hear it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, an interesting point that there's so few places in our, certainly the mainstream culture, where we are allowed to talk about what's really going on. But, yeah. you know, there's an interesting thing about all that, because um, a lot of people are under the impression that, that a philosophy or a, a worldview like your dad's in uh, the American Dream piece is somehow related to a conspiracy theory of some kind. And um, it's so frustrating because it's, it, it's not necessarily organized. Yes. I, I mean, I'm I not agree. even, I, you know, who knows what happens at the at the Bohemian Grove. Right. You don't have to Besides believe. Men dressing up in dresses and right. singing You don't songs. have to believe <laughs> that it's a conspiracy to accept it as truth. Yeah. Because um, it's driven by a culture and it's driven by a, a mindset. And it's driven by uh, its own morality and ethics, which are not necessarily an individual's well, morality or ethics. And I think the world is way more complicated than what conspiracy theorists come up right, with. I mean, for right. them, it's like there's these people with all the power, and they're pulling all the strings, and it's like, well, but the world doesn't work that way. There's so many different layers to being a human and being part of a culture than that. Yeah, there, it's it's not, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, conspiracy, conspiracy theories are definitely not within my my uh, realm of uh, immediate acceptance, but um, you know there is no question that a culture exists, and the objective is not necessarily to pull strings; it's to make money. But in order to do that, they end up pulling all sorts of strings. Um, uh, and, and we, as consumers, allow them to be pulled because we do have personal choice. I mean, there is something about personal responsibility. We here. do, but there is also a lot to be said for ignorance. I mean, there's a lot to be said for what your dad puts forth there as well about, you know, they don't want us critically thinking. And, and uh, 
Even that sounds like a conspiracy. Who's they? But the truth is that that through all governmental institutions and through most corporate institutions, we get a very, very narrow view of things. They yeah. put forth a very, very narrow perspective, and, and we... You know, we're now several generations into a very, very narrow perspective on things. Well, and, and, and that's kind of keys into why I'm even doing this project and this radio show. I mean, the whole idea for me, first of all, the title of the show, Waking from the American Dream, was absolutely inspired by that bit. I was sitting in the audience when they recorded that, and he said that last line, which is like, you know, you have to be asleep to be able to believe in it. <laughs> and it was literally like for the next five minutes, I couldn't think of anything else because I, was, I thought, first of all, Fuck you, Dad. Once again, you poetically put into <laughs> you know, it's so one sentence, like everything my whole life is about. And and so and, and this whole idea of waking up, you know, it's a it's a huge concept because it's not just a cultural thing, but it really is a personal thing, too. And that, and that the two feed each other. It, yeah, I, I think it has to be a personal thing. It's just that, you know. We have a culture that doesn't necessarily um, foster that and well, doesn't necessarily value it or put, put it forth as a part of human growth and development. You know, we have a very interesting uh, situation in that our lives are programmed very, very early. Um, you know, we, we, we are put into a system, we either buy into it or we don't, mm -hmm. pretty much at a very early age. I mean, very rarely to find somebody, you know, in their 40s, who decides, you know what, I'm going, just going to go the whole other way. Yeah, but here's an interesting thing, too. So I grew up in the shadow of watching my dad go from straight comic to the George Carlin that everyone really became to know. And, and it certainly was a huge shift in, in the culture. We became part of the counterculture, although we always were pretty much part of the counterculture in my family. But then I grew up, because of my dad's success, we became an upper-middle-class family in America where we had very nice houses and very nice cars and we were living the American dream right. on some level right. and absolutely my dad's work was feeding our ability as a family to live the American dream I had private school I went to um, you know I could afford anything I wanted my dad gave me whatever I want so I lived a very typical you know except for the fact of him being this countercultural hero I actually was, in some way, indoctrinated into the system at the same time as not being indoctrinated into the system. Right, right. So it's like it's not so cut and dry, you know, like... Well, you know, the, 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 American, the outward trappings of the American dream, living well, having money and resources and being able to, you know, pamper oneself or treat oneself to a, a great education, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with what... The American dream purports to to uh, offer us. It's just how you get there and what it means once you're there. And too many people are are just sort of buying into the system as if that's the answer to what really is a very inward process. And that makes and that's a great point because I always am curious about people who, and these are always my heroes, people who, at some point, had maybe a crossroads in their life where they could make the choice to buy in more or take the risk and buy in less. Um, so as a, you, you yourself, I mean, you're a creative person, you're, you're a stand-up, you're an actor, you're a producer, you're a filmmaker, you're all these things. Did you ever have a point in your life where there was the safe road and then there was the path unknown or the, the riskier road? Yeah, well, interestingly, it um, uh, that happens at any point. I mean, it happens. It happens at some point on any particular journey. Like, I never made the choice to have a conventional life. I, I started doing stand-up professionally from the age of seventeen. That's automatically different from just about you know everything else I could possibly have chosen. So you would think that I was completely not buying into conventionality through that. But the truth is that at some point, I was faced with exactly that question. Do I keep going further down this path, or do I make a path that somehow, you know, even rejects this? And, uh, and that's what I did. And I ended, up, uh, I ended up actually, at about the age of 40, I ended up going uh, overseas. I started working in the UK, and with a resume nine miles long, uh, went back to doing open mic nights to try and get spots at the comedy store and little clubs around town in London, mm. because I wanted to go back to feeling what it was I felt when I first 
became completely obsessed with this and I realized that this the world of comedy was my home and mm. it was the only place that I felt like I belonged. Mm. Uh, I wanted to feel what I felt when it was nothing but possibilities ahead of me, where there was no sacrifice too great, and where I, I had nothing to lose. Mm. Um, uh, I thought I had made all my life choices based on those kinds of things right. all along, right. and discovered that that, in fact, is not the case. That yeah. somewhere along the line, I ended up on a train I didn't really necessarily even want to be on, and um, and that inhibited my work and my creativity and I ended up in this place where you know I had to deliver and I had to I was I was getting hired to do the things that I had always been doing yeah and they weren't satisfying for me right so there was a lot to sacrifice yeah at that point um, and um, and I just I just ground it all to a halt I literally ground the train to a halt got off and without even thinking that, you know what, there's no train coming. There's <laughs> right. no other train coming. Right. So I you know, just had to schlep my bags and just walk through the open fields looking for some sign of yeah. life. Yeah. Um, uh, but in that process, in evaluating what the hell I was doing, mm -hmm. um, I went back to why did I want to do this in the first place. I wanted to get back to feeling that I just wanted to be on stage doing stand-up. I didn't want to, I, I, I wanted you, to get as far away from... You didn't have any career goal? The, no or, career goal, no goal-oriented. Right. I wanted right. to get back to where there was nothing at stake right. for me to just do stand-up again and feel that again, Yeah. you know? Yep. It's a little bit like losing your virginity. You don't get to do it twice. Yes. But I wanted to feel, <laughs> you know, yeah. that again. Well, and, and, um, and, and that was a huge awakening for me, and it put me back in the place where... I, I just I, I sort of reestablished what I cared about, and that's such a, a great story because uh, you know one of the things that I want to do here on this show is to reinvent, reweave, retell the story of really what this American culture is about and what America's about. You know, we have these ideas and we have these platitudes and we have these myths already kind of set forward. But, but it's like what you're talking about right now is what I really believe is like something that I love about American culture. And I think it's what people come to this country to do is because people in this country can connect to their passions about something and become obsessed by it. And those obsessions can change the world. And, and, I, and I love that. I love that you at 40 wanted to reconnect to the real passion and the real spark of like, why, why am I even here? Like, what's the fucking point? The bottom line is really, uh, for me, what it was, was, uh, was my particular reawakening was um, uh, very much about just getting back to the values that, that drove me at the time when all things were possible. Mm. And before I felt like something is not right here, when yeah. everything was right. Didn't matter what I did, where I went, how it happened, it was all right. And um, uh, and I think that's what it ultimately all boils down to. That's why, you know, the, all this um, political rhetoric about, uh, you know, free markets and, and you know, socialism and, and, and social programs and all this sort of stuff, you know, bottom line, pure and simple, look at the values that a corporation's activities embrace i don't care what they say bottom line pure and simple look at the values and 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 what are their priorities and there is nothing wrong with making a buck there is nothing wrong with it that's another thing that people can't seem to because yep. we're driven by dualities everything is good versus evil yep. red state blue state right. which is a canard right. there's 50 purple states you know <laughs> um everything is uh, you know uh, right wrong left right mm -hmm. that duality is is just a classic divide and conquer and that's that's a great point to wrap up here because I just want to say that for me, one of the ideas of waking up is always to move beyond the duality. Yes. There is a third position beyond duality. There are an infinite that, numbers of positions. Well, of course, but, but, there, but there is a certain position that actually holds all the other positions within it. Yes. And, and so for me, that's one of the concepts of waking up is to be able to hold, yes, there's actually, there really is more than two sides in this country, like you were saying. There's you know, 300 million perspectives, actually, in this <laughs> yeah. country. And, 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 you know, it's always interesting to watch the game go on, but how to, one of the things I love doing is helping people to learn to step away from the dualistic game and to be able to take a really big, broad perspective and say, now, and now what do you see? Mm. You know, now what's right. real to you? Right. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for coming over and hanging. Thank you for having me.
I, I hope people will listen to your show because uh, it's so eclectic and you're so interesting and and, uh, and you really go inward. It's interesting because you've not asked me a single question that you haven't asked yourself a million times. I, I, I think that's really uh, noteworthy. Hmm. Well, with that, uh, we're wrapping this up. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> Welcome back live here in the studio. Uh, this is Kelly Carlin and Waking from the American Dream. That was my first interview that I did for my show in uh, a back studio in my house, which has become a very groovy space uh, for myself and my family. Uh, my family being a very actually big thing. I'm an only child, but I seem to have collected uh, quite the amazing group of uh, artists and writers and directors and stand-ups and all sorts of forms of fantastically crazy people. And so it was really cool to to get to sit down in that that space. I'm thinking about calling that section of the show uh, "shooting the shit with." So, uh, you know, uh, I guess in the future we'll have a little uh, theme song for it or something. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so anyway, I want to get back to. I want to get uh, go forward now. Not go back. I want to go. I want to go forward. This is so weird for me because I'm always so used to being in conversation with people. I'm like a trained therapist. And right now I have this big black microphone in front of me. <laughs> and if I peek around it, I can see my producer, Barbara Roman, just sitting there smiling at me right now. But it's like, I'm talking to myself. It's very strange. Uh one of the things I wanted to say uh, to introduce my next guest is uh, Paul and I finished that conversation by talking about duality and uh, being a Gemini and Barbara and I were just talking about this in the car, you know, the whole astrology thing. I mean, who, who knows? Do we really believe in it? Do we not? What does it all mean? But I know that I'm a Gemini and I've always had a thing with uh, the opposites, like always wanting to hold the tension of the opposites. That's what we Jungians call it. And it's basically where you can hold good and bad at the same time within the same space. And the next gentleman that I have on the show, the next interview is with a gentleman named Gempo Roshi. He's a Zen master. He's actually uh, a, a Jewish American man who grew up in Southern California. Uh, but uh, he is now officially a Zen master. He's been studying for years. And you'll hear all about that. Uh, but the cool thing is, is that here Paul and I were having this conversation and the duality thing came up. And then of course, talking to a Zen master, you're going to talk about duality and non-duality and all that kind of stuff. So um, I met Gempo Roshi uh, through online on the internet, uh, through the Integral Institute, which is Ken Wilber's uh, website, where he has a bunch of interviews and experiences with amazing spiritual minds and teachers. And Gempo has a process called Big Mind, and uh, it it literally blew my mind. So you'll you'll be hearing me saying quite a lot how much it blew my mind in this interview. Uh, so I'm going to do a little quick little station identification, and then we're going to go right into uh, Gempo Roshi. You're listening to New Dissident Radio. Uh, Jack, they they already know that. You don't need to tell them. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Never mind. Welcome everyone today. Here I am sitting via Skype with Gempo Roshi, who is one of my teachers. Gempo Roshi is a Zen master who's been teaching for 30 years. He's the creator of the Big Mind Process that we'll be talking a little bit about today, which will blow your mind. And he teaches all over the world internationally, has been practicing Zen for 40 years. And his lineage is with uh, Maizumi Roshi, uh, which was at the L.A. Zen Center. Is is that right? Is that where he taught originally? Yes, that's correct. He moved into that center in the 60s, 67, in fact. Wow. God, what, a, what an amazing time that must have been. So, so it's actually a great place for us to start. You entered your Zen practice, was it in the early 70s? That's correct. I, I started sitting actually February of 1971 out of an experience that I had. I went out to the desert with a couple of friends of mine, and uh, I was dealing with issues in my life, and I went out there to look for some space. I took a few days off, and I had a mind-blowing experience in the desert that changed my life from that day on. It was a spiritual awakening. And 
at that point, I was teaching school and I was lifeguarding. So you had this experience in the desert, and what happened? What was the shift for you? What was the aha? I was sitting there contemplating my life. I wasn't sitting in a traditional Zen posture. I was sitting more like a Native American would sit. I didn't know anything about meditation at the time or anything like that. And I was just questioning, uh, how could I have screwed up my life so badly (laughs) at the age of 26, right? I'm still so young. I'd already been divorced and uh, found myself in the same kind of situation in a new relationship where I felt trapped and I I felt really controlled. And so I went out there really looking for some answers hmm. to my life. Not philosophical questions, not very, uh, you know, uh, transcendent questions. Right, or, or big esoteric like, things. I was just questioning my life. I started to ask the question, where is home? And I looked out and I thought, well, okay, where my camper is, that's home for the next three days. But that's not really home. Where is real home? And then I thought, well, back in Long Beach, I had an apartment just across the street from the beach on, in Long Beach. And I thought, well, that's home. And then I realized, no, that's temporary too. Mm. And then I had this aha, all of a sudden, body of mine dropped off. And I was one with the cosmos. I was one with the universe. And there was no, there was no separation. There was no distinction between me and everything else and it was mind blowing (laughs) Uh, I mean I was God I was the universe I was the cosmos I was awakened and all of a sudden all of life made sense and became very very simple and in fact uh, everything just fell into place And I realized uh, that everything I had been pursuing all these years, but it was always towards a goal. It was always to get someplace, to achieve something. Yeah. um, All of a sudden, that didn't make sense anymore. And the only thing that really made sense at this point was continuing to clarify the self, my life, Mm. myself, and to serve others, to help others in, in clarifying the way. My whole life changed. Yeah. I, I went to Long Beach. I broke up with my relationship. I give notice that I'd be leaving in June. This was February 6th of 71. It was like I'd go, I was going like a full tilt, like 180 miles an hour, one direction. I found myself in complete opposite direction where all of that seemed rather empty and unimportant. It's so interesting because I'm really thinking about this in the context of, you know, what we call the American dream and the average American life. And, you know, you were you were this young man and you were pursuing this pretty normal American goals of, you know, a, a career or a job and a relationship. And you had these bigger goals as an athlete, certainly, that you had, you had been doing. And, and then you walked away from it all. I mean, to me, that's like, it's, I mean, I get it. And I, I think a part of me fantasizes and I've always thought about wanting to just go and become a, a nun or a monk somewhere. But uh, you actually did that. Yeah, I did. You know, but it didn't seem like a big deal in the fact that I almost had no choice. Once I had this experience, everything became clear. And what was clear was to leave my career. I had tenure as a teacher, and I had a wonderful job as a lifeguard. I love lifeguarding. I've been doing it since I was 15, 16 years old. I just really had to get alone, had to be alone. So in June, I actually set off hitchhiking. And I hitchhiked throughout the Pacific Northwest and Canada. I went through all the states. I think I hit them all. And um, I ended up by September, that was June, by September moving into a cabin 
up halfway between L.A. and San Francisco, just off of San Luis Obispo, back in the Santa Margarita Ranch area there in Los Padres National Forest. Anyways, uh, I really needed to be alone. Mm. It was it, something I really had to do. So do you think because of the times it was in America, which was the early 70s, and people were, uh, you know, experimenting with all sorts of lifestyles, that it was After- easier to walk away from it all? Maybe. It was definitely within the culture. You know, when I when I hit the road, I mean, I was one of many hippies <laughs> out there, you know. I remember one time getting stuck somewhere in Northern California on Highway 1, probably up near the Russian River or, or that area, where I think I was there for maybe eight hours with my thumb out. And eventually, I just knew I couldn't sleep there. And I would just find a place to sleep you know, each night. Then I put my thumb out in both directions. <laughs> south, I just needed to move, you know. And luckily it came going north, and that was the direction I really was on my way. But uh, I would have gone south, you know. That kind of time. Which is funny because you're a Zen master, and at that moment you wanted to be anywhere but here and now. Exactly. <laughs> Well, of course, I wasn't as in master then. This is true. This is true. But, you know, but I did know I was going to be. In fact, in June of 71, I was, um, I went up, I, I, I was up in Glacier National Park, and I had tennis shoes on, Adidas, with no socks, right, and... Uh, very little clothes. I kept a backpack. And I was heading to a general store when I saw this sign that said 50 miles to Waterton National Park, Canada. And I'm going, oh, it's a 50-mile hike. And I decided to on the spot to do it. But it was while I was there, the second or third day that I was up in the Glacier National Park, I was on a mountain peak that was called 50 Mountain Peaks because it looked down on 50 mountain peaks. And I was sitting there, and I realized that my future was to become a Zen master. You're listening to an interview I've done with Gempa Roshi. This is Kelly Carlin on Waking from the American Dream. Let's move forward a little bit and and talk about the work you do now. And, well, in particular, let's introduce my audience to to the work you really do, which is this this thing called Big Mind Process. And if you want anyone want to check it out, you can go to bigmind.org. And Roshi teaches most Sunday mornings and and some Thursday nights. And if it's not Roshi, it's one of his students who who teaches. And you can for free watch the video and and participate along with with the whole group. So t- tell me a little bit about. I mean, you obviously were a traditional Zen student for a certain amount of years, and then something happened and you wanted to add something to the practice. I mean, this is a very kind of a radical thing for a Zen master to do, is come and, like, introduce a new process into this pretty straight and narrow, in some ways, practice. Well, it is radical. Let me give you a little background. So... I I met my Zen master in 72. I was actually sitting in that cabin, and at some point that spring, uh, I decided to open it up to people who wanted to come and meditate with me. And so I I left some flyers down in the health food store down in San Luis Obispo, and twice a week, uh, a group of about 20 people would come up, and we, it was a great group. We, we taught each other yoga and, and, and astrology and zazen and massage and everything. And everybody taught something, you know, what uh-huh. their gift. And I taught zazen. And um, I met a gentleman there who was probably about the age I am now. I was 26. He was probably 60s. And we met. And he then introduced me to Mizumi Roshi. He called down and said that I have a young man here that I'd like you to meet, and I'd like him to meet you, and I'm going to send him down for a retreat, a traditional session. And I began to train with Mizumi Roshi, you know, until he died, which was 1995, May of 95. So 72 to 95, I trained with him. And he made me a teacher in 1980. 
Now, he had me start teaching in 1973 already, where I was doing introductory classes on Zen to groups of 20 and 30 and even 40 people. And then by 79, I had completed koan study, which is the foremost study. In 78, he had me actually start holding personal interviews with students. So I've been teaching from 73 on, and I was a traditional Zen teacher. I still am. I still teach traditional Zen. Mm -hmm. However, in 99, June of 99, I introduced this process, as you called it, the big mind process, which I gave birth to, and it was really like a pregnancy. I kept telling my staff and my wife and everybody, I feel pregnant. And And I started to feel really odd because I felt something growing inside me. And it was about nine months. It was kind of amazing. And then in June, right around my 50th birthday, or no, 55th birthday, I gave birth to the Big Mind process. And um, what it is, is really, it's traditional Zen. Mm -hmm. It's just that the approach is so radical. Instead of having a person sit and meditate for umpteen years and then have a breakthrough, a realization, a Kensho or Satori experience, I actually do a kind of question and answer and more of a, you could say, a a Socratic method, very similar to what the Buddha used. I mean, the Buddha did a very similar thing. He would ask questions and then bring out, kind of elicit from people the innate wisdom, the intrinsic wisdom that is there within all of us. And what I discovered was if I ask the right questions, I can actually get a person to shift their mindset and to actually make a shift in the way they perceive things. And this was mind-blowing. This blew my mind. Uh, (laughs) Again. (laughs) Again, all all these years later. But again, it, it really did blow my mind that, by simply asking, may I speak to, let's say, big mind or big heart, or may I speak to the, the non-seeking mind or the non-desiring mind, and they say yes, and I say, okay, so who am I speaking to? Well, you're speaking to the non-seeking, non-desiring mind. They have a shift, and it's a physical shift, and it's an energetic shift, it's a shift as clear as any Kensho experience, really, except for a Daikensho, great movement, and more clear than most people's glimpses in a more natural and organic way. What you're saying is absolutely true, and, and it's so interesting because it, it is as easy as that, and it's so funny because our minds, our regular day-to-day minds, at the same time, don't want to believe that it's as easy as that and it's it's it just it holds in it such an interesting place because as one discovers when we do big mind work with you and especially when you have us speak from the seeking mind which is kind of the mind someone like me is in a lot i'm very inquisitive i'm always looking for the truth i've been on a path myself for 25 years and i have a shitload of books in my house that are supposed to tell me where the path is and what it looks like and all of that. So I've been identified with Seeking Mind for a long time. And then, I re- I'll never forget it, I-, I heard you on a podcast with Ken Wilber, and then, so you asked for, for Seeking Mind, and I could go right into that, and it was very comfortable for me. Oh, I know this place. And then you asked to go into Non-Seeking Mind. And I remember the first time... I just let myself make the shift in my chair and said, I'm speaking from non-seeking mind. And everything was dropped off, all sense of time, all sense of space, all sense of seeking, all sense of grasping, all sense of need. I had had glimpses of this uh, in my life. Sometimes in nature, I'd had a glimpse early on when I was 12 years old in Yosemite. I'd had a few glimpses at some times looking at myself in the mirror and having this kind of experience because I was asking myself, who, who am I really and what is this life about? But I had never had the voluntary, like where I could ask to be there and, and do it. And it's it's such an amazing thing because 
the great thing about the practice that you teach is, and, and, and here's the thing, you know, people are, or people like me who do this, and then we kind of go back into our daily life and, you know, maybe I'm not in my transcendent space all the time. But the cool thing about what you do is you teach a, a, a very simple technique that allows me, the more I do it, to basically in any moment ask myself to speak to non-seeking mind and there it is. <laughs> okay. It's it's quite amazing. One of the things that, you know, you said that maybe then I'm not in the transcendent, uh, but, you know, the triangle work that I do, and you're very familiar with it, but maybe our listeners are not, the triangle, you know, if you imagine... Uh, that the seeking mind is, let's say, at the left-hand corner of the base of the triangle, and the non-seeking mind is the right-hand corner base of the triangle, and that triangle is you. That's your life, your body, your mind, you know, the whole, the whole enchilada. Uh, at the apex, when I ask them to speak to the apex, and we'll speak to the seeking mind, then we speak to the non-seeking mind, then when we go to the apex and include the whole triangle, or the delta, we could call it, at that point, there's no such thing as not being in the transcendent because it's a sliding thing. You slide back and forth constantly between the transcendent or the, seek, uh, the non-seeking and the seeking. And then you can see that it's actually by not having a preference for one over the other that that's it. And a great Zen master, one of the all-time greats, uh, Keizan Zenji, uh, he was the third generation after the great Zen master Dogen Zenji who lived 1200-1253. Keizan Zenji said a very interesting thing. He said, do not try to get rid of delusion, nor seek after enlightenment. <laughs> you know, and it's, he's saying the same thing. Don't seek after enlightenment. Don't have a preference for the transcendent over the non-transcendent, over the ordinary. Just wherever you are, it's perfect. And so sometimes you're going to just fall into the transcendent or be in the transcendent, and sometimes you're not. And that non-preference, the third patriarch, uh, who was the third patriarch in Chinese history, uh, three patriarchs after uh, Bodhidharma, he said, the perfect way knows no difficulty, just avoid picking and choosing. Just have no for or against anything. No preference. And that's it. You, you know, so you can actually give up worrying about, am I in the transcendent or not? Am I in the seeking or not seeking? And knowing that sometimes you're seeking and sometimes you're not seeking. And once you start doing this process over and over again, it allows you to relax and be comfortable with whatever state of mind. Now, you see that, that my ordinary mind is the way. There isn't a way apart from ordinary mind. It's so interesting because I've been around Buddhist centers and retreats since about 97 myself. I started with Thich Nhat Hanh, going to a couple of retreats. And, and even last night I, I was at the Conscious Evolution Conference, and I always encounter these people who, who just want to be in the transcendent. They don't, they don't want to get into the muck of being a human or the, the mess trap. of life. Yeah, it's a big trap. It is a big trap. And, 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 and yet it's only a bit, and that you only can figure that out though, I think, once you finally see the trap of it. It's like no one can tell you it's a big trap until you're in it and go, oh, this is, there's only half of a, a life here. There's so many traps, and, you know, there are people, there are Zen people, even Zen teachers, who get caught up in that Zen has got to fit some picture or look some way, and it's, it's about sitting this way, or it's about wearing this robes, or, you know, or doing this in this way. And, you know, and there are even people who are very skeptical about the big mind. I mean, there's not many. There's one at least out there. Uh, who's very skeptical. Uh, but they have such a narrow mind, such a small mind, and so limited. And it's amazing 
because the, what the big mind process does is actually allow someone to open their mind, <laughs> yes. have mind you know and and there are people out there who just think uh, no I want to stay small I want to stay narrow I want to stay uh, limited and, and just be critical you know and it's it's actually humorous you know because their lives end up sucking <laughs> Put it very mildly. You're listening to Waking from the American Dream in my interview with Gempo Roshi. This is Kelly Carlin, and there's still a little more to go. So I'd like to kind of take this conversation and, and expand it a little bit just in the in the five or six minutes we have left here. You know, I look out at, at America, and there's a part of me that gets... There's a there's a voice that you do sometimes, which is the fixer. <laughs> and so there's a part of me that's the fixer, and it wants to fix America. And I think, oh, if everyone would just do big mind, everything would be fantastic. Well, of course. I well, you know, that's, that's where I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be true if everybody would just do big mind. So maybe let's just assume that that could be a possibility, that if everyone could do this interesting process where you hold all of your humanity with all of your divinity at the same time and be able to hold them equally with no choice or preference, that the world would be a better place. When you look out at America, and and I'm assuming you, I don't know how sheltered you are or how much you watch the news or see what's going on, but there's a lot of screaming and yelling there's a lot of conspiracy theories as it feels like democracy is shaky and things are going wrong when you look out it what do you see as if from a zen master's perspective <laughs> um well you know i see what you see i do feel that we are going to make it and i really feel that we are on the cusp of an evolutionary shift in consciousness. And the, the, almost the worse things get, the closer we get to complete self-destruction, the more intense is going to be. And I, I almost see it as a movement to the apex. Mm-hmm. It's like we're being forced, the, the dichotomy, the, the, the good and evil, the right and wrong, the this and that, the, you know, all of the conflicts, all the opposites, all the extremes are pushing us to the apex. I mean, that's what happened to me. You know, I, I was given a, a, a teaching or, or a, it was a koan by Trumpa Rinpoche, which was to embody the extremes. And I said, the extremes, wow. all the, right? Embody all the extremes. And by embodying all the extremes, and that's what's happening on the planet. Yes. We're, trying, we're, you know, we're not at the place of embodying it, but we will be there. And when we really do embody all the extremes, it's going to shoot us to the apex. Mm. And it's going to shoot us to that place where we, we integrate, where we bring together and we see that all the extremes and all the opposites are one. Like enlightenment is delusion, nirvana is samsara, uh, good is evil, and evil is good, saints are sinners, and sinners are saints, and you know, on and on and on. You know, that we have it all within us. I mean, there, there isn't anything out there that's not within me. Osama bin Laden is, is in me. Everything out there is within us. And we stop throwing sticks and stones, and we stop fearing people who are different. And we actually will, I believe, become one world. I mean, we are one world. We'll actually realize that we're one world and get on the same team. And I know it's going to happen. And all the work that I'm doing in so many consciousness, helping people, people bringing consciousness to the planet like yourself and others, we're all working towards that same goal. And I feel like it's kind of like moving a school bus uh, that's stuck, and you've got to just throw your whole body into it. Everybody's got to put their back into it, and we'll get it going, and we will do it. But we all have to get on the same page. You know, we all have to throw our backs into it, our shoulders into it, 
Uh, and we will, and we will succeed. All this stuff going on, I see it bringing us to a, a new breakthrough of consciousness, and we will do it. It may take years before we realize we did it. <laughs> you know, we're not going to wake up one day and say, oh, we're here now. No, we'll wake up someday and say we did it back in 2012 or 2014 or 2018 or whatever. And I believe it started already. I, I believe it did. And I, and I believe it did, it did start on some level in the 60s when all of this transforming of consciousness came into our consciousness in the West here. That's, I mean, literally. And so, right. you know, and I think we've been really... We've had, you know, 50 years of this. We're, we're working it. And, and, and here's what I just got, too, is that you said, I, I believe we're going to make it. And something I just got for myself, which is interesting, when I'm in the apex, I, yeah. I see all possibility. I hold all possibility because I am all possibility. Right. And I see that the more that people practice whether it's big mind or Zen or, or any other kind of practices where they are having a daily relationship with their consciousness and integrating it into their human life, that it's literally like we are showing the way of that, oh, this is possible. It really, really is. You know, I'll say one more thing about your original question about the radicalness of it. You know, what brought about this birth of Big Mind was I realized in 1994, I had a, a big breakthrough in 94, where I actually came down the mountain, you know, literally came off the mountain, and saw the need to move more from a monastic training that I was giving my students. You know, we were living in Bar Harbor for four years where we were just doing six months of heavy retreat, 10, 12 hours a day of Zazen for three months at a time, and then I was going to Europe, and I was doing another three or four months in Europe on a yearly basis of intense sessions like this. So, I mean, I myself was in retreat nine to ten months of every 12 months. And I realized in 94 that it isn't just that what we call in Buddhism the three poisons that we're dealing with, greed, anger, and ignorance, but there's a fourth element now, which was time that wasn't there in the time uh, of Shakyamuni Buddha, it wasn't there in the time of Jesus Christ, wow. and it wasn't even there 100 or 200 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it was there. of course, time always existed, but it wasn't to me. Yeah. It was, you know, time was racing on, and we were racing against time. And at this point, something became critical in my mind, and that was to reach the planet, to reach all sentient beings. You know, we have this saying, uh, you know, I vow to liberate all sentient beings, right? Well, we had to take that vow very seriously. It couldn't be abstract anymore. We really had to reap all sentient beings. You know, and Ken Wilbur, he talks about, you know, a certain percentage. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's even less. But we have to reach that, whatever that tipping point is of mass consciousness, we have to reach it, whether it's 5%, 2%, or 10%, and we have to tip that point, and we will. But it takes all of us doing everything we can to help others wake up. And this process could actually lead the way. And so the tradition of sitting there on your butt for 20 years, have a realization, you know, and then another 20 years before you do anything about it, was just you know, I did that. But we had time in the 60s and 70s. We don't have that same time now. And this process is I'm able to integrate it into my non-monastic life. And I'm able to utilize it in a way where I can sit for a half hour and use this process and and really have my, my mindset changed every day. And it's, it's a great aid for people because it's a real guidance and it's a real structure that holds it. So um, I want to really thank you for birthing <laughs> on behalf of myself selfishly and on behalf of the planet. Uh, really, truly, this very, very innovative and cool process that you teach. Well, I want to say it's been a real honor to be able to be a vehicle or a vessel for this. I mean, I don't feel like it came out of any real intelligence on my part. It was a gift to me. 
you know, it just it just came out, you know. And it's like when you do have a child, you know, a birth, it's it's like a blessing. I mean, it's it's a great thing, and that's how this has felt. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. And like I said earlier, if you want to check out Gempo Roshi, uh, go to uh, bigmind.org and come sit with us as we all sit in Big Mind and check out his retreats. I know you have a fall retreat coming up. In I have a fall retreat. I also have a weekend in Los Angeles coming up soon. <gasps> when? When? Sometime in October. I don't remember the exact date. I think it's around October 23rd or something like that, and 24th in L.A. I mean, I've got a lot of things coming up, stuff that's not even on the website yet. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah. people go to the website, check it out, and if you come to the L.A. one, you'll see me in the audience speaking from my many, many minds. <laughs> Thank you again, Gempo Roshi. Okay, thanks, Kelly. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You were listening to an interview I did a few weeks ago with Gempo Roshi. Oh, don't you just love him? He's so amazing. He's, he's the Zen master, and yet he's just approachable and normal and human and says the word fuck and drinks beer and it's none of that new age airy fairy bullshit that you get especially in this town he's the real deal he's done a lot of work he does amazing work in the world and i i really highly recommend checking him out um, and you can always um, find me on facebook find him on facebook and i can certainly steer you in the right direction so that's uh, most of our show today. I just wanted to uh, give you some information about myself and the show. You can certainly find us on Facebook at Waking from the American Dream Radio Show. You can also find me on Facebook, Kelly Carlin. Please come like me. I now have a fan page. I'm so cool. Yeah, Johnny Dam's laughing at me right now. Uh, we also have an email address. We are looking for royalty-free spoken word music comedy, and our email address is wfadradio at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter. Uh, it's Waking Amer, A-M-E-R, Dream. Waking Amer Dream on Twitter. And, of course, I'm on Twitter, too. I'm such a freaking social media whore now. Um so I want to thank uh, my guests, Paul Provenza and Gempo Roshi. I want to thank uh, Chandler Travis and Stephen Shook for letting me play their first song. You can find their music and Chandler's music at ChandlerTravis.com. I want to thank the fabulous Johnny Dam for giving me this opportunity. I want to thank my producer and great friend, Barbara Roman, who's kept me completely sane and um, held me when I got a little too dramatic. I want to thank Gary Stockdale, Carmela Cardina, Gary Edgren, I want to thank the Polymind Commune. You people know who you are. I want to thank my husband, Bob McCall, because he is the Rock of Gibraltar in my life. I want to thank everyone who listened to me live. And I'm going to play a song. I'm going to play a song on our way out here. It's by a gentleman named Mark Aaron James. You can find him on iTunes or at www.markaaronjames.com. And that's Aaron A.A. R-O-N. And this is a song called Give a Damn. So God damn it, try to fucking give a damn. See you in two weeks. Love you. Bye. Something for some disease is lying on a leaf in a great big forest. And it's coming down. If the cure falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, doesn't make a sound. If it don't. Guy with the key to peace in a foreign 
Never mind.